I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 27th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that when we make a conscious decision to conform to God's law or not, that choice is between choosing our objective evaluation and catering to our emotional reaction to God's law. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Our lesson for this morning is the 27th part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in the 20th chapter of the book of Leviticus and the 22nd through the 24th verse, which read as follows. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name. Of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in the text of our last lesson, Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31 tells us, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. And in the book of Leviticus, God is laying down the principles that would lead the Israelites to the establishment of a holy kingdom in the promised land. The word holy literally means dedicated or devoted to the service of God or set apart for God. And the principles in the Bible are designed, the book of Leviticus rather, are designed to set Israel apart from the Canaanites living in the promised land And God's plan is to displace the Canaanites to create a kingdom of God on earth. Now, the easiest way to understand the kingdom of God is to think about 
speeding on the expressway. Now, one day, I asked the state police trooper, how many miles over the speed limit can I drive my car on the expressway and not have to worry about getting a speeding ticket? He replied, troopers will usually give you five miles over because when they write a speeding ticket, they usually use the good cop ploy of taking five miles off your speed just to get you to pay the ticket and keep you from going to court. So five miles over is pretty safe. But when you get up to about eight miles over, look out. And if you get up to 10 miles over, you're a good candidate for a ticket. Now, since the expressway speed is 75 miles per hour, I set my cruise control at 75. Excuse me. The expressway speed is 70 miles an hour. So I set my cruise control at 75. And when I have to maneuver around trucks, which are supposed to drive 10 to 15 miles per hour slower than cars on most expressways, I avoid increasing my speed. Now I'm fine driving 75 when I travel in smaller cities or in light traffic. But my problem comes when I am driving in or near an urban area and the automobile traffic is moving along at 80 miles an hour or more, which is fairly common. Now, the trooper told me that driving faster than 75 will probably get me a speeding ticket. And my experience has been that if I am in a line of 10 cars driving 80, passing a trooper on patrol, the trooper will pull someone over and give them a ticket and the other cars will slow down while the trooper is in sight. But if I'm driving 75 miles per hour and the other cars around me are driving 80, I have to get over to the right and drive in the lane with the trucks, which are driving around 60 miles per hour. I either have to do a lot of maneuvering between different lanes, slower trucks, and faster cars, or I can speed up, drive 80 miles an hour with the rest of the traffic, and take a chance on being the one that gets the speeding ticket. Trying to keep up with the traffic involves deciding whether to keep the law or to take a chance on getting a speeding ticket for breaking the law. And getting a speeding ticket is a problem. For each speeding ticket that I get, I get points on my license. I will receive two points for a speeding ticket for driving up to 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. Each speeding ticket I receive will give me additional points. And when I reach 12 points, the state will revoke my license to drive. So if I get six speeding tickets within two years for driving 10 miles over the speed limit, I will lose my license and will not be able to drive. Of course, I don't have to worry about getting a ticket at all if I decide just to never drive faster than 75 miles per hour. And wherever I'm going, the difference in the amount of time that it takes to get there is not significant whether I drive 75 80, or even 85 miles per hour. The fact is that there is no objective benefit in speeding. The only reason to speed is the perceived benefit of keeping up with the other cars in traffic. Objectively, the best decision is to drive 75 miles per hour and ignore the car zipping past me at 80 or more. But I feel a negative emotional reaction when other cars are passing me. It's though I'm driving too slow and everyone driving 80 miles an hour or more is getting ahead of me. Ultimately, 
I find myself having to choose between my objective wisdom and my emotional reaction. Now, this speeding example is the microcosm of life in general. For the Israelites in the Old Testament, although they didn't have cars, and for us as well. When considering how to conform to God's law, we almost always find ourselves having to choose between our objective evaluation of the situation and our emotional reaction to the situation. My emotional reaction, the feeling that everyone else is getting ahead of me because I'm, because I'm driving too slow, is caused by peer pressure. But if everyone kept the law, there would be no peer pressure and I would have an easier time keeping the law. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. If we go back to the original sin, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 tells us, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I find it unlikely that the woman would have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had the serpent not pressured her because peer pressure was the excuse that the man and the woman gave God for their sin. Genesis chapter three, verse 11 through 13 tells us, and God said to the man and woman who told you that you were naked, had you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the man blamed the woman and the woman blamed the serpent. Peer pressure was to blame. But God instructs us to avoid peer pressure. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 through 18 says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So God tells us that that. Uh, we should avoid peer pressure by keeping ourselves separate. We should only have peers that believe in the laws of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are only to drive on expressways upon which the cars drive at 75 miles per hour so that we will not be tempted to conform to the peer pressure of keeping up with the traffic by driving 80 or faster. And if you understand this concept, you will be able to understand all of Scripture. 
in the Bible, God gives us the commandments, which are analogous to the speed limit signs on the roads in the kingdom of God. And just as the speed limit signs are easy to understand, so also are the commandments. Our lives are analogous to a trip on the heavenly expressway. Our lives are designed to teach us the wisdom of driving 75 miles per hour rather than 80 miles per hour or more. And on the heavenly highway, if we get caught breaking the law of God enough times, we will accrue enough tickets that we will eventually lose our license. In God's kingdom, losing our license is called death. Now, Psalm chapter 90, verse 10 tells us, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. And generally speaking, if a person does not live to be 70 years of age, it is because they have violated the law of God enough times to have their license revoked. Now, in our text, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22 and 23 tells us, you shall therefore Keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nations which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things and therefore I abhor them. So now how will God cast out these Canaanites? God tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you and an inheritance, you shall net, let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So God commands Israel to kill all the Canaanites because the Canaanites refuse to obey the law of God, and God does not want them as peers for the Israelites. The Canaanites collectively have more than 12 points on their licenses, and God is revoking their driving ability. And as the A portion of Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. To God, physical death is the revocation of our license to drive our lives on planet Earth. And God will revoke the license of anyone that consistently gets 12 points on their license, regardless of their race, creed, color, or national origin. The text, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22, uh, tells the children of Israel, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you may not vomit you out. Now, last Sunday, we talked about health laws designed to avoid the spread of infectious disease. The next set of laws that pertain to our topic, the biblical design of gender, have to do with the morality of family relations. The first law, as given in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, tells us, everyone 
who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood shall be upon him. Now, this law is an expansion of one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 records, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So in God's law, parental honor leads to longevity and parental cursing leads to execution, which is the revocation of your driver's license before the age of 70. Honoring our parents leads to longevity because our parents have been where we are going and will wisely counsel us to keep within the speed limit. Now, we may have different career paths, more or different responsibility, and be more successful in the workforce than our parents, but keep in mind that our work is neither our blessing nor the most important thing to God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19 records, Then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So work, in fact, is our curse. And our private life with our spouses and children is our blessing and the most important part of life. Our takeaway point tells us that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And Genesis 2.18 says that a man without a helper is not in a good situation. Genesis 2.24 tells us that a man without a helper is not complete. As it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, God does not say, that a man and his wife are a married couple. God says that a man and his wife are one. It is a logical conclusion that if the combination of a man and his wife equal one, a man without a wife is less than one, and that is why our takeaway point says that man, in his complete state, is the cooperative coalition of husband and wife. And this coalition is where life happens, both in the sense of procreation, the bringing into the world of children, and in the sense of emotional fulfillment. Because the primary and most fulfilling relationship in life is the marital relationship. I learned this from my dad, because even during the years he was taking care of me and my two brothers, 
the one of whom he was really taking care was mom. Dad was taking care of mom his entire married life. The point of marriage is not the raising of children. Children are a common project. <coughs> Excuse me. Children are a common project used by God within a marriage to bring the husband and wife into oneness. Children, however, are not a permanent part of a marriage. Each child is designed to leave their parents and become one flesh with someone else, not to stay intimately involved with their parents. After all, Genesis 2.24 does say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But, even though the plan of God is that children will develop autonomy, the plan of God is also that children will honor their roots, that children will be able to go to their parents for wise counsel about family manners, and that children will honor their parents for the 18 years or more of sacrifice that the parents put in as they worked on the child-raising project designed to bring them closer together. So fathers and mothers, as the people responsible for our personal existence, are people whom we should honor. God used our parents to create us. Cursing a father or mother is analogous to cursing God. And God has decreed that those who curse him are, or the ones that he sends to be an authority over us is a capital offense. So the primary relationship in life is marriage. And the next speed limit tells us that God is serious about the marital relationship. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 records, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now in Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 through 6, Jesus answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In God's law, anyone separating a man from his wife picks up 12 points on their license, and their ability to drive on the highway of this life is to be revoked. Now, my wife and I went to a dance seminar taught by a fellow from Detroit a couple of weeks ago. He was teaching what is known as new school Chicago stepping. Now, we're familiar with old school stepping, and since we happened to have the morning free, we decided to attend his class. He was a pretty good instructor, and we enjoyed the class and picked up a few things. We were out dancing Friday night, and we happened to see the woman that invited us to the original seminar. She told us that the instructor was coming to Lansing again the next day, and so we decided to go back to his seminar. But obviously, the young lady had not done as good a job advertising the second seminar as she had the first, because other than my wife and me, there were only four ladies in attendance. Of course, the instructor wanted me to take turns dancing with the other four ladies. 
And as Marie and I were practicing on the step that he taught us the last time, he came over dancing next to us with one of the other ladies. I came over to switch with you, said the instructor, because you really need to dance with someone else so that you can learn to lead better. I know that you two have your thing together, but you two may get bored dancing with each other for a whole evening. Marie and the other lady laughed. I don't think that's going to happen, the other lady said, and I know it's not personal because he only ever dances with his wife. The instructor looked at me and I told him, Brother, I've heard the learning how to lead argument since I started dancing, but really, I only dance with my wife. It's a religious issue, so you're not going to change my mind. Well, the instructor responded, I didn't mean any harm. I guess I just spoke out of turn. And Marie and I spent that lesson dancing with one another, just as we always have. Now, in the city of Corinth, there was a famous temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. The temple normally housed some 1,000 priestesses and ritual prostitutes, and each night, the thousand women would come down into Corinth and ply their trade among the many foreign travelers and the local men. And sex with a priestess or a temple prostitute was part of that which the Corinthians thought of as worship. Now, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth and planted the church, he told the men of the church that their form of worship would have to change. And after Paul left the church, and the church continued to grow, the leaders wrote Paul for instructions to give the new members about the many, quote, worship, unquote, temptations in their town in which the men were used to participating. And Paul wrote them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now understand Although there are a thousand prostitutes in the town, and for years, prostitution has been thought of as worship, Paul doesn't just tell them that they ought not visit prostitutes, but that they ought not touch a woman at all. Talk about culture shock. I'm sure that the Corinthian church lost a few members as soon as that verse was read. According to Paul, the speed limit on the expressway in Corinth was not to be set at 75, but five miles per hour on an eight-lane divided highway with no curves or hills at all. But Paul knew how unreasonable that sounded to the Corinthians, and so he fixed up the speed limit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, which says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, Paul's admonition was designed to be the solution to the problem for every person faced with a situation of extreme sexual temptation, as were the Corinthians. Regardless of the level of temptation and peer pressure with which we are faced, God's law does not change. And Paul tells us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. And the dance halls to which Marie and I go are much like Corinth. The dance hall is a place in which the women display themselves in their most attractive outfits in order to get men to dance with them. Women come to the dance, like to the temple to Aphrodite in Corinth, to attract the participation of men. The dance hall is potentially a place of temptation, but the Bible tells me that along with the potential temptation, God has given me an actual way of escape, and that way of escape is my wife. And the women of Corinth are going to pout when I don't dance with them. As we were sitting around during a break in the class in which I was participating, one lady said to me, you're not a man. When the lady sitting next to her gasped, she tried to clean it up. I mean, you don't have any gender. Then the lady sitting next to her said, stop, you're not making it any better. Then she turned to me. She's just trying to say that you aren't attracted to any of the girls, but that you only dance with your wife. I just looked at her and nodded because that was exactly the message that I was communicating. Yes, the traffic in the dance hall is going at 85 miles an hour or more, but I'm staying at 75. I don't want any points on my license. And, Leviticus, and according to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, I can get my license revoked for just driving in someone else's car. And Paul tells me that since my wife and I own a car, not only ought I not drive in someone else's car, I shouldn't even sit in the driver's seat. And I don't intend to. Now, in this next set of laws, God changed the law of marriage within a family. Now, Abraham, as we have studied, married his half-sister Sarah, and Isaac and Jacob married their first cousins. But because of the growth in the nation of Israel, because of the 300 years of intermarriage with the Egyptians, and the divisions of the 12 tribes, God changed the rules of marrying near kin. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17 and 19 through 21 tells us, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near of kin. Kin they shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And God gives us the speed limit of zero for perversion. As Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11 through uh, 16 records, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them surely shall be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. 
If a man marries his woman, if a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And then God says in our text, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22 to 24, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nations, which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and I therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. But God ended up destroying the nation of Israel as they were seduced by the statutes of the Canaanites and walked in them, sinning against God, just as the Canaanites sinned against God. It seems that regardless of how clear God makes his law and regardless of how clear the benefits of disobedience, uh, the benefits of obedience and the punishments for disobedience are made, we always manage to find a reason to disobey God. And because of the universal nature of sin, God was faced with the reality that he would have to destroy one nation after another. And even after doing so, God's kingdom would still not come and God's will would still not be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So God solved the problem of sin by not just giving us his commandments, but by giving us his son as a sacrifice and his spirit as a God. Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, came to empathize with our weakness and take away the points that we have on our licenses. As Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 tells us, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus Christ as our high priest takes away our points and offers us a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice to cleanse us of the penalty of our sin so that, as Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus Christ has put our points on his license, the punishment of death is no longer an issue for us. As Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then Jesus regulates us through the Holy Spirit, as he tells us in John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the solution to our sin problem is the combination of the Son of God and the Spirit of God who atones for our sins and cleanses us of them. It is no longer the sterile words of the law of the of the law of the pages of the scripture, but the sin cleansing Savior and the life giving Spirit. And all we have to do is trust in the righteousness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as First John chapter one verse five through nine tells us. This is the message we have heard from Jesus Christ and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let us recognize the mercy of God, both in his law and in his sending of his son to save us. And let us decide to conform to the speed limits of the spirit and that is our lesson for today let us pray gracious god our father we thank you this morning for these limits that you have given us we thank you for your word that you have given us and the rules and the regulations that you have given us to make our lives better help us to recognize that sin does not improve us it may seem beneficial in the short run but in the long term, the truth is that the wages of sin is death. But help us to recognize that obedience to your word brings us to the best conclusion that we can possibly reach. And help us to recognize that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. And Lord, if there's any in the house that don't know you in the pardon of their sins, we ask you, Lord, that you would benefit them with the grace of that knowledge that they might come crying, what must I do to be saved? And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, 
In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.